<coughs> in the this week's parsha, we read the giving of the Torah and the Ten Commandments, <coughs> and there is an issue, um, a fundamental issue, many obviously, but let's pick out one fundamental and ask a few questions about it and see if we can derive a new understanding. And that is the question, one way or another, the understanding of what Shabbos is. Shabbat. Shabbos. One of the Ten Commandments, a lot of questions we can ask about it. Why is it, apart from being one of the Ten, why is it almost synonymous with being Jewish? Many ways we regard desecration, Shabbos desecration or public Shabbos desecration as being almost synonymous with breaking everything. (coughs) Shabbos is presented as a Shabbat and its observance is presented as parallel with what Torah is altogether. Many examples of that. One example, one obvious example is that a non-Jew, a non-Jew is permitted to keep, to do any of the mitzvahs. A non-Jew can perform mitzvahs. But not, not Shabbat and not learning Torah. Not with very serious consequences, extremely serious consequences. E- even a convert, even someone coming to convert to Judaism, so they are required not to keep Shabbat during the, the learning process. In other words, while they are yet learning, and even learning the laws of Shabbat, <coughs> they, are, they need to break Shabbat at least somehow privately once during the Shabbat. And learning Torah, again, you have to know which aspects exactly, but why are those two singled out? Why is it that a person who wishes to convert can start learning and practicing, and yet these two things not? What do they have in common? Every mitzvah has something unique. Every mitzvah is a, f- a facet of a jewel that no other facet can represent or reflect. But what is it about this one? What is unique about Shabbos that connects with Torah in general? Why is it synonymous with the <laughs> Jewish identity almost? Let's see if we can try to let's see if we can delve a little bit and try to work out work out this idea. Probably one of the most misunderstood ideas and one of the most central. It's common sense, or it should be. It's unfortunately not common sense, but it certainly should be. (coughs) And it should be intellectually clear that every process demands and is uh, justified, if you like, by its end point. (coughs) Every process, every, every journey is justified and given meaning by its end point. You agree? A journey to a destination, the whole journey and all the difficulties and even all the preparations, <coughs> there may be a long story involved in setting out on a journey and undertaking a journey. Surely the reason is the destination. More specifically, if you understand the destination correctly and you have identified the destination, 
then not only does the journey in general make sense, but really every detail should make sense. Uh, even, for example, if someone's going on a journey and there's a stopping off to rest. But even that makes sense, because if it's necessary to take a break so you can continue properly, then that also would be part of movement towards the destination. Even if it would be a sidetrack for a reason, whatever it would be, even if it may not appear to be necessarily at that particular point moving towards, but every step would be and should be understood in terms of the destination, the end point. A journey with no destination is, is, is very problematic. A journey that has no, a process that has no output, that is problematic. Again, this is the most obvious and should be, should be the most obvious, the most fundamental element of any process in life. And unfortunately, a little thought will show, will, will show you that it's not. But it certainly should be. And it's almost unnecessary to, to, to build the point, but let's make sure we understand it. <coughs> I mean, if, imagine you went to visit a... Let's say you went on a... You went to explore to visit <coughs> the lab laboratory of, a, of an inventor, let's say. And on the desk, on the workbench, you find... You see a machine. His latest invention. It's a very complex machine. So you... Ask what it does. And he very proudly switches it on to show you what it does. And this machine <coughs> very cleverly keeps itself going. It works, but it maintains itself, and it oils itself, and it fuels itself. It does everything that it needs to keep itself going. Stupendous achievement of a machine that does all that's necessary to keep itself going. After you admire this machine for a few minutes, you turn to him and you say, and what, and what does it do? And he says, no, it just keeps itself going. <laughs> well, <coughs> that's problematic. That's problematic. What's the point of a process that is justified within itself. If the machine does all those clever things and it makes you a cup of coffee or has some meaningful output, then the whole thing is very clever. But if the thing has no end point, if the process is justified only in terms of the process itself, that doesn't make sense. Why is it possible for people to involve themselves in process that has no end point? Why do we live that paradox? <coughs> Take anything that's not important, relatively unimportant. You'll see people test it by judging the end point and whether it's effectively been reached. There's no business, no sensible or, or halfway decently run business that doesn't have a goal and there's a constant measuring, yeah, I presume in business the goal is to be profitable. I mean, I'm a businessman, but I presume that there's a certain measure of profit, at least that there should be profit and perhaps how much, and the goal is tested. That means the process is tested against the, the output, I presume. Or someone engages in an activity, training for a sport it could be. Surely there's an end point that a person wants to get to, and there's a measure, and that's the responsibility of a person who's training or a coach or a teacher to make sure that there's progress towards an end point. Or a building, or any project that has any, any reality in the world. There's an end point, and there's movement towards an end point, and that's the justification of the process. And this, this has, to be, has to be answered for if there's no... So why is it that in the things that are really important, like life, most people just amble through it without even having thought of defining what the end point should be? Or marriage. 
What could be more important than the meaning of a relationship of marriage, for example? So, most people define marriage more or less as the beginning point, where it starts, and then it sort of gets vague. <coughs> but that doesn't make sense. Why is it that when it comes to something silly, like your sporting achievement, relatively silly, or <laughs> business, or any other activity that you, that is, you find important, so you set a goal, and the whole process is tested by the goal. <coughs> but it comes to the really important things, like where your family is going, or what your marriage means, what the raising of children means, or most important of all, who you are and what your life will yield and will mean, we don't even have the process of even thinking that there should be a goal, let alone pondering what the goal should be and testing whether I'm moving towards it. That doesn't make any sense at all. But that's a travesty of human existence. If you, if you observe most people on earth, unfortunately, for the vast majority, you'll see that their lives consist of process for the sake of process. Most people are engaging in daily activities to earn enough to sustain themselves so they can continue engaging in those daily activities. Most people are earning a salary so they can stay alive, so they can keep earning a salary. But that should be, that should be enough to drive you insane. <laughs> Especially if you engage in an activity that's not intrinsically meaningful. If you're engaged in a pro- profitable activity that's also mitzvah-related, so you can perhaps justify the process. But if you engage in an activity that's designed to earn a living, the output is not intrinsically meaningful. And you go do that every day so you can earn enough to stay alive so you can do that the next day. So there's sort of vague realization that the real reason you're doing it is because there's a weekend. And what is the weekend? It's a half unconscious state. <laughs> that is only designed to give you just enough to pick yourself up at the end to go through the same thing another week. So people with more foresight and insight, they say, well, that's true. But I'm doing it because at the end of the year... <laughs> so what is the end of the year? It's a couple of weeks unconscious on a beach someplace so that you can do the thing for another year. <laughs> so most people who think through that will say to themselves, well, now, because the real reason is when I've done this long enough, <laughs> then I'll be able to do only that. <laughs> And unfortunately, the truth is that most people who do that long enough, who do earn enough to do it eventually, by the time they get enough to be able to do it, their arthritis is so bad they can't walk down to the It's not really funny. Not really funny. Unfortunately, most of human effort is put into a maintenance program, which is a scramble to maintain the maintenance. That's what it is. That's not what we're designed for. We're not designed to be machines whose output is simply input. That's not what we're designed to be. There has to be something meaningful. The end of the process, when there aren't any days left, you have to have something to show. Something to show, to show for it. Jewish teaching is, 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 is quite explicitly that what you have to show for it is you. And attached to you are marital issues and family issues and Jewish concentric circles and the world at large. In fact... <coughs> But that all, uh, those are all reverberations or resonances of what it is that you've become, or should have become. So what is the sense in not even having thought about a goal?
So let's let's try and get it clear. There's process and there's endpoint. Those are the two dimensions of which the world consists. A world that lives within time. A world that lives within the dimension of time. What lives within time are the dimensions of space. But they held, the deeper sources say that time is the ultimate female dimension. That's why women, of course, resonate with time. Men's bodies do not resonate with time. Not like women's. Women's bodies resonate with time because the female dimension is time. The word zman in Hebrew. The word zman in Hebrew means zimun. Zimun in Hebrew means ready for that which will occur. It means an invitation for events to transpire. It's not just a passive medium. It's a, it's a, it's a medium that, that demands and, and, and requests that reality should take place and build and develop. So there's the dimension of moving towards, and then there's the end point. That is the process of time. And the world lives in time. There is nothing else to time. So that's an important thing to understand. There is nothing else. There's no other reality in time. Time is only the movement, the transition of process becoming end point. That's all there really is. What, what do you have to show for any process? Any, any, pro- any <coughs> meshech, any duration of time that you went through? What do you have to show for it? The time certainly you don't have to show. It's not there anymore. There's no, all that you are now is your past. The past, is not, is not, is, the past does not exist. All that exists is the most frightening idea. The most terrifying idea. All that exists from the past that has dissolved is what was extracted from it. What was exported. It's not for nothing that the, that the, that the dimension that holds human existence is so obviously illusory. It's so illusory, in fact, that in science there's no real grasp of it. You know, in, in, in scientific notation, even not even any way of in physics and in science, the grasp of the concept of the present, right, which is reality, actually has no expression. The definition of the present is the transition between the past and the future, and it's infinitesimally thin, which means it doesn't exist. That's a serious issue. Let, let's put it a little differently. Where do you live? Where is your existence? Is it in the past, the present, or the future? There's no question you live in the present. And I, I presume that's clear. You don't live in the past, that's gone. You certainly don't live in the future, it hasn't happened. Your life is in the present. But the present is nothing. It's an it, it, it's, it's infinitesimally rapid transition from the, something that doesn't exist anymore to something that certainly doesn't exist. So where are you? But that paradox and that, that spiritual problem, things aren't built in the world to torture us for no purpose. That, that existential torture is constructed in the fiber, it's built into the fiber of our beings so that sooner or later when you become of sentient mind, old enough to be conscious of these things, you should have a realization that, the, that this is going to happen until it isn't anymore. And in the last moment of consciousness, and it's better to talk about these things, but in the last moment of consciousness when it goes, there isn't anything. The only thing that's real is that which has been extracted through that ethereal and ephemeral transition of from nothing to nothing. So if you're not using that, that, that mystical transition to extract something that remains, what is there?
that thing, does he? Switch a plug off there. So, that's the problem, that's the issue. The Ibn Ezra wrote a poem about that, the famous Ibn Ezra. He wrote a, a beautiful poem about that. The poem goes like this, He'avar ayin, the past is not. He'asid adayin, the future is yet to be. Ahoyvek heref ayin, the present is like the blink of an eye. That's what it is. So, this dimension of time that itself is, suggests illusion, is therefore the teaching that if every moment is not destination, then it's nothing. Let's try and look at this a little bit more deeply. The formalization of this, that means the, the formal expression of this, if you like, is what we call this world and the next. <coughs> this world and the next. Right? That's there's no deeper axiom in Jewish thinking than the fact that we live in two worlds. We live in a world that's called this world that moves towards a world after this. The reason for the construction of those two dimensions and how, how and why they were put together is not tonight's discussion. Let's take that for the axiom of this evening. The, the, what we call this world, we call Eretz. Right? The Hebrew, again, again in, 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 so in English, they call heaven and earth. <coughs> heaven and earth. Eretz and Shamaim. Eretz means the land, Eretz, the land, and Shamaim means heaven. So in, the, in, a, in a battered English translation, it comes out as heaven and earth. Which is completely meaningless. I mean, he- heaven and earth in English means, the heaven means sort of celestial, a- astronomical spheres, and the earth means this planet. But in Hebrew it's not like that at all. The celestial, that means the astronomical bodies, the, the, that's definitely part of what we call Eretz. They're material objects. That's all part of what's called Eretz. When we say Shammai, we mean something that transcends all of that. The word Eretz, again, you have to escape from the English, the trap of the English words. Heaven and earth have nothing to do with it. Eretz, which means earth, or this world, the derivation of that word in Hebrew means moving towards. Eretz is based on the word ratz. Ritza means a a flow, a moving towards. That's the journey. And shamaim in Hebrew means endpoint. The word shamim, sham, in Hebrew, means there. Shamaim is shamim. It means all the theirs that could be indicated as a there is always a place that's not here. That means it needs to be moved towards. It's the final place that when you get there, it is the ultimate here. So the expression, the expression is what's being said here, and the beautiful in the, with the, the super, the super conscious overtones of the words are that there's a process that we call this world. <coughs> And then there's a destination, if you like, which is called there. <coughs> it's no accident that the word sham in Hebrew, which means there, which indicates endpoint, is the same word as name. Shame is a name. And it's the root of the word neshama, which is the soul. All of which are like various expressions of ultimate endpoint. Sham, meaning there, is the technical 
indication of an endpoint. Shame and name is always the mystical or the spiritual definition of essence. Essence, your name, is really where you're going. Your name is really the definition of who you are, which is what your journey is really towards. It's what you start out at the beginning of the journey, and it's the end point to which you, you move. So your name is your expression of essence. That's where your journey is directed, is to discover the essence of what your name says. And of course, with that clear, it's no mystery at all that the word for soul, neshama, is based on shame. That is the essence of who you are, is your neshama, the soul. So it's based on... It also happens to be true, again, which is not tonight's subject, that the word for utter devastation and desolation in Hebrew is the same word. Shmama in Hebrew... Heishamu means they were destroyed, right? The sh- sham. But that's because in, in Lashon Kodesh, in Hebrew, spiritually powerful words, the words in Hebrew, have a meaning and they're opposite in the same word. They're opposite polarities in the same word. Each word has the potential. Each concept has the potential to go in two ways. The soul, the name, your essence, your destination, right, it's the same power that if not used... Now, if used wrongly, that's where your destruction will be. That's the destruction of that that is the destruction of your life if that's not realized, not someone else's. Just like in Hebrew, the word dibur means meaningful progress, right? Speech, for example, means putting thoughts into meaningful... Midbar in Hebrew means a desert. The opposite of any place of road and possibility of travel, right? But Shammai means the end point. So the process we understand when we say heaven and earth, which is meaningless, when we say Eretz and Shammai, we mean a movement towards and an end point. Our concept is that this life is a moving towards a destination, and the next world is nothing other than the result. What is the result? So there's another mistake here. People who understand that this world moves towards another one, they think it means that there's this world that moves, and then there's a reward. There's a reward. There's another place you go in Baruch Hashem. This suffering is over. And now the burden is relieved. And then there's a reward for what you've done. But it's a, it's a one-dimensional misconception. Our conception of the next world is not that there's a reward that's given. Our concept of the next world is that, the, is that it is what you've done. The reward is who you've become. The next world is, is nothing other than your life itself. But, but, but clear. Let me try and express it. These are hard things to express. Let me try and put it this way. It's going to look awfully familiar. Let me put it that way. Now, do you think it's going to be a place where... What do you think the next world's going to be? When you're lying on this velvet couch with the ladies with the fans and the... <laughs> with the grapes in the mouth? <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be like that it's, it's going to, our descriptions of that situation are very very familiar it isn't anything other than what you have lived and done but in its correct version you know both sides the ecstasy of it will be what you achieved it will be the sense of ecstasy of what was achieved and the sense of the fact that you achieved it it will be of the fiber of your being and the pain of course is living through the painful things that were generated, but this time feeling the pain. Now, we have sources that say that, let's say that the punishment in the next world, or the, the sensation in the next world for having hurt someone's feelings. Like you say, a careless word, you took it. Careless with someone's feelings. So what happens in the next world is that you sit facing that person, right, feeling what they went through, 
exactly what they went through. Again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. It's eternal world in which there's no change. And therefore, it's one long experience of the same pain. Actually, the sources say it's, it's a lot worse than that, because it's 60 times more intense, and it's also exposed publicly, especially the things you did in private, are punished publicly. Why, you may ask, what's the f- it's got to be fair. It has to be fair. So why is it that it's felt continually if you only did it once? First of all, everything you've done once is continual and ongoing. There may not be a consciousness of it every moment, but it's damage. A life that was affected, that you desensitized when you hurt somebody, that life took a knock that... It wasn't a blip that recovered. No, it doesn't, it doesn't look like that. But the deeper reason why it's unchanging is because it's a world in which the personality cannot change. This is a world in which you can sensitize yourself. So when you're in a place where you cannot be sensitized, what happens is the pain is an attempt to resensitize, but the real pain is the fact that it's now not possible to be sensitized. The Gemara says that the people who, the, the, the Kairach and his followers, right, are continually repeating the message underground, wherever that place is, they're continually repeating the message of what they should have said right, but they're saying it again and again and again. The reason is they're trying to get it to drive into their characters. And open the windows. Thank you. But it doesn't go in. You can, you can sit here if you like. Is that moving? The message doesn't go in because that's a world of of course, ultimately, it's that very pain, or according to the places, the sources that talk about it, it's the humiliation of the fact that it has to be done when it's not in your power to do anymore. That humiliation is the pain that finally affects the sensitization. But this world and the next, not directly our subject. <coughs> Let's put it another way. The manager says that in the next world, the tree and the fruit taste the same. That's the classic expression. Tama eats katama pri. The tree and the fruit taste the same. Meaning, you can eat the tree. Here you can only eat the fruit. The tree is hard and woody, cannot be eaten. It's only the means that brings out the fruit. In the next world, the tree is the fruit. Which is the way it was designed to be. Until, but when the earth disobeyed and brought forth fruit, not like the tree, tree not like... It needs its own explanation. But, our, but the next world is... That's why it says ready-made foods will grow on the trees. And unlike food now, that needs process. We're talking about endpoint, not process. In this world, what grows is raw material that needs to go through process to reach endpoint, to be ready. In the next world, it's ready-made endpoint product that is produced. Put another way, the tree and the fruit are the same. What's the meaning of this? The Kabbalistic sources discuss this in detail. The meaning is this, that... The concept of a tree, you know, it's also no accident that trees are used. You know, Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, is a place of trees. Right? There was a tree in the center of the garden, the tree of life, and a tree that was not in the center was the tree of knowledge of good and bad trees. In Hebrew, Eitz is the root of the word Etzem. Eitz means, in English, means a tree. But in Russian Kurdish and Torah, Eitz is always the root that means the deep and most essential <coughs> intrinsic reality, like etzem in Hebrew means the bone of the thing, or the actuality of the thing. A garden of trees you know, doesn't only mean a place where trees grew. It means the dimension in which things have their, 
reflect themselves, manifest themselves as what they really are. That's what it means. Where things reflect themselves as they really are, so in this world, the tree is only processed. You can't eat it. But it brings out a fruit. The fruit is eternity. The fruit is the symbol of the next world. It's no accident. A fruit is a remarkable combination. So every detail in the world needs to be studied. A fruit is a remarkable combination of sweetness, but it has seed inside. There's a remarkable thing. Again, why is the world built in such a way that the sweet edible part of whatever grows happens to be the same place where eternity is located? Remarkable thing. It needs its own explanation, its own discussion. But one of the clues here is that the sweetness which is edible, which is the end point, which is the product, is also containing within it the seed of eternity, which means it can do the same thing again. <coughs> There's an indication that this is where the process is. The process brings out this end point, which is the coming to seed, which is the... But how's that done? There's phases. There's process which is not fruit, and it brings out the result which is fruit. In the next world, the process is the fruit. <coughs> what does it mean? That the misconception is that this world is the tree, the next world is the fruit. This world is hard, full of ordeals and difficulties and sufferings and pushing against resistance and doubts and confusions. It's a veil of tears, bitter and difficult. When you get there, this is all over <coughs> and it's sweet. The message is when you get there, you see that what's sweet is this. This becomes the fruit. It's not that this is over, there's something else. There the fruit is the tree. Because all you, all you live with, all you are there is what you did. It's not something else that's given because you did this. They hand out a reward in proportion to what you did. You did this, you get... They don't hand you something else. They hand you you and your life and all the moments of your life that were ephemeral, fleeting things that weren't caught. What happened in those moments is what lives eternally and that's what you are. So what's the process? The pro- what's the concept? The process is that there's a dimension of movement towards, and then there's the result, which is the result of the process. The destination is only the combination of all the steps that you took to get the destination. That's what it is. Isn't there anything else? The end point of the road is how many steps you walk to get there. One step less is one less. <coughs> and the meaning of the journey is the destination. That's what it's all constructed to build. And that's all the destination consists of. Now, Shabbos is destination. What Shabbos is here to teach you, the main message of Shabbos is not relaxing, resting. The world thinks Shabbos is a rest. Manucha, resting. Shabbos got very little to do with resting. In fact, technically, there's no reason that you couldn't work very hard on Shabbos physically. If you want to carry your furniture around until you're dropping on Shabbos. It's not, it's not Shabbos dick and it's not... <laughs> recommended, but it's not an infraction of Shabbos. Shabbos is not that you should rest after working hard, it's a completely non-Jewish concept. Shabbos, the depth of it is so important, nothing more important in Judaism to understand than this. Shabbos is the result of a journey. It's the practicing of the most important message that there is in the world, which is that this is a journey that will have an end. If you don't drive that into your consciousness every week, you may forget. You know, every other mitzvah, every other cyclical, you know, event, right? We have it once a year. Pesach is very important, teaches about freedom. Once a year is enough. Shavuot, Shavuot, very important, teaches about Torah. Once a year is good enough. 
Not whatever Sukkot. Yeah, what we, once a year, the message, and you live on it for the rest of the year. But Shabbat, you need every week. That's a very important message. The concept is that there's nothing more important than remembering that every step has to be towards a destination. If you've been walking and walking and walking and you look back at your tracks and they've been going round and round in a circle. The tremendous pain. Shabbos keeps you on track to remind you that this life moves towards a, dest- a destination. It can't go back again. So every week, you, what we do, what do we do? We practice the process of moving, 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 building to a crescendo and a climax, and then simply being. What's the concept of Shabbos? Let's examine it. Shabbat an amazing word. It means, it has, it has the concept of Shevet, which means sitting, which is non-movement. And it has the concept of going back, Tashuv. The same letters that spell Shabbos are Tashuv, right? Go, going back. Because there's, really, there's really a revisiting, there's a going back to the moment of origin. That's what it is, what Tshuva is. Tashuva means going back to the purity that you inhabited before you undertook a mistaken journey. What, let's understand, what is Shabbos? So the world thinks, the non-Jewish world certainly thinks, unfortunately most of the Jewish world thinks, that Shabbos is where you rest. You worked hard all week, you need a time to rest. Now it's psychologically healthy, and it's family-wise, it's healthy. Well, that's true, but that's not essence. You know, in Torah, the, 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 in the, the Torah system is this, that the spiritual message and the spiritual construction, the spiritual result, always invests the details of the laws. In other words, the technicalities of, of halacha, the technicalities of how you observe the mitzvah, with all its dikdukim, all its specific halachic requirements, that's where the spiritual message is located. That's where the spiritual effect is located. It's not that there's technicalities, what in English they call ritual. There's the ritualistic aspect, then there's the spiritual depth. That's the problem of this generation. That we're not interested in the ritualistic stuff. That's, that's petty and, you know, one the rich spirituality. There isn't any rich spirituality other than invest the technical actions. It's like, exactly like wanting the destination, but the journey's petty. This step and this step and this step. It's messy and petty. You just want to be there. <laughs> Not the way it goes. The spirituality is the technical observance of the mitzvahs. One of the biggest jokes of this generation is people who wish to study Kabbalah and without practicing anything. <laughs> That's exactly like engaging in intimacy without being married. That's what it is. It's exactly what it is. But it's a problem of this generation too. It doesn't go that way. There's a, there's a building up of, of commitment. And it goes someplace. What are the laws of Shabbos? What are the laws of Shabbat? Without detail, just conceptually. Shabbos has got nothing to do with work or not working. The laws of Shabbat are that you must desist, you must stop 39 specific actions of creativity with no regard to how difficult they are. Striking a match, for example. That would be difficult. One of the, one of the, one of the um, clear travesties of this idea is there are, there are streams of thought, if you want to call it that, within Judaism but that seek to change Adapt, modernize, reform certain halachic concepts. So what do they say? They say like this, well, we don't have to do the same things we had to do in the past. 
For example, on Shabbat, you ask a person like that, why don't you observe the laws of Shabbos? So because the reason for those laws is that you're obliged to rest. So making a fire, back when our forefathers spoke about it in the days of the Talmud, the way they made a fire was they rubbed sticks together. Back in Talmudic times, everybody knows the Talmudic sages lived in caves, <laughs> that they wore skins, and they rubbed sticks together. And that's how they made a fire. And so it was hard work. Today it's a flick of the wrist, and therefore there's no problem. That is such a fundamental misunderstanding. There was no, there's no prohibition. The, the work is not the issue. The creative, what's called malacha, you know what's forbidden on Shabbos, is not called avodah. In Hebrew the word avodah, lavod, means to work. What's forbidden on Shabbos has got nothing to do with avodah. The contrary, you're supposed to do avodah, avodah shebalev, davening, work on yourself. What's prohibited is malacha. Malacha in Hebrew means creative activity. It's got nothing to do with the effort. Carrying one matchstick from your house to the street is a malacha. That is transgression. Lighting one spark of that is a transgression. Writing two letters is a Shabbos transgression. Nothing to do with effort. You, you, you are constructing a spiritual reality in the world that was not there before. Spiritual construction is what's prohibited. Why? The 39 creative activities that are prohibited on Shabbos, the Gemara in Shabbos says, that these are the same 39 creative activities that construct the world. Now we can't go into the details, you need to look it up. There the Gemara goes through, the actual derivation is, the formal derivation is, the Torah says that the Mishkan, the sanctuary in the desert, should be constructed, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, and right after that it says, keep Shabbos. So the sages in the Talmud learn, our tradition is, that just like the actions that were needed to build the Mishkan, those are the very actions you may not do on Shabbos. And Kabbalistically, the actions that were needed to build the Mishkan are the actions that were needed to build the world. The 39 creative activities in the spiritual dimension that constructed the world are paralleled in the microcosm of the Mishkan. We have a concept, a Kabbalistic concept, that the Mishkan and the Temple later are microcosms of the universe itself. Now, again, it's not the time. Also microcosms of the bodily structure, of the whole universal structure, in, 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 in all its detail. That's what's being reflected there. When the world was built, it was built with 39 creative, constructive actions. The Mishkans built by humans were using the same actions, paralleling the structure of the universe. And Shabbos is desisting and stopping from those very specific actions. <coughs> the concept is that there's a work and building and construction of the universe during the week. And on Shabbos you stop. Why? Because the process of the world is that you're here to build it and construct it, the inner and the outer world, and there will be a come a time when you'll stop. When the, soft, when the last sun goes down, that's it, there's no more building. And if it hasn't been built, the way the government puts it is, if the food isn't prepared, you don't have it. The most says the next world is like a ship where you, yeah, if you take provisions with you, you have what to eat at sea. But if you don't take provisions with you, you don't have. That message is so fundamental that every week we practice it. You go through the week of work, and then, the sun goes down, you move, it's a mitzvah even to, to, to push it and to run as Shabbos is getting closer. And when the sun goes down, Friday afternoon, Friday evening, the Kedush of Shabbos comes in and nothing more allowed. There's a, there's a static existence. Not static spiritually. But there's a static, that means that instead of becoming, there's a state of being. Instead of building, there's a state of consolidating and bringing home that was built. You know what's fascinating? Is if you look in the Torah for its description of Shabbos, every time Shabbos is mentioned in the Torah, it's always preceded by a mention of six days of work. 
Remarkable thing. The Torah never mentions Shabbos as such. It always says, six days shall you work and then keep Shabbos. Meaning, Shabbos is nothing other than the stopping of the work that's been, the creativity that's been taking, that's been developing the process. Shabbos is the stopping of that. You can't do Shabbos every day. I mean, you can lie around doing nothing creative all day. Most people do that. But the point is that the idea of Shabbos is that six days of creativity and then the stopping, it's that stark contrast, which is what it is. The message being nothing less than the educational activity, the reminder that is, we are attempting to drive into the depth of our personalities, that this whole life is a process of days that will stop. And what you'll be left with then is only what you built. You know, this process, halachically, is going further. You know, the customs, there are many customs that we do on Friday. Let's take a couple just to illustrate the point. You know, the customs that we do, striking and remarkable thing. There are many customs that we do on Friday, right, Arab Shabbos, as Shabbos comes in, that parallel dying. You know that? Going to mikveh, washing, cutting hair, trimming nails. These are all things that are done to a dead person. Custom of wearing white, just like a person's dressed in shrouds. Not accidental. Not accidental. There's the concept in some communities, you know, people, you know, Tahira, when somebody dies, they're washed off. In some communities, they put in a mikveh. There's a custom like that. As a preparation for moving off from this into the next. So Friday, we go through that. It's, it's quite a stark message. But that's what Shabbos is designed to be. It's a reminder of the transition. You know, halakhically, the details are exact. Let me share with you just an illustration. Again, again, in Torah, you need never look beyond the specific details. No such thing as ritual. No, there's meaningless rituals, sort of mumbo-jumbo sort of actions that don't mean anything. Then there's the spiritual size. Nothing like that. Let me share with you an example. Just one example to illustrate this. Don't have time to go into all the examples and each of the malachas and all the customs and all the minhagim, but let's at least take one. Shabbos is me'ein olam abats. It's like, me'ein means it's a 60th of the next world. You should be able to taste it. You must say sleep is a 60th of death. A dream is a 60th of prophecy, etc. Shabbos is a 60th of, incidentally, why is it a 60th? Why one in 60? The concept is that if you know anything about the laws of kashrut, if you know anything about kosher food, you'll know that, that there's a concept we have in kashrut, that when one thing falls into another thing, like milk into meat, for example, now without going into the technical details, the drop of milk falls into a meat dish. Again, without going into details, whether it's liquid or solid and how it works, but if there's a mixture, then if it falls in so that it becomes dissolved and thoroughly mixed in, if it's a minority, then the whole thing is okay. In fact, it would be wasteful to throw it out. Not, you have to know the details, and it cannot be done deliberately, but that's what it would be. It's called bitl. Bitl means it becomes annulled in the majority, the law of majority. We hold, we, the, the, rule, the general rule is, when it's more than one in 60, more than one part in 60, then it's not annulled. Only less than one part in 60. The, the, the Gemara says that one part in 60 is when the taste, less than that cannot be tasted. More than one part in 60 can be tasted. And since the taste is there in the food, it's prohibited. But if it's less and it cannot be tasted, it's annulled in the majority. Without going into those details, you see one thing. A sixtieth is the borderline of taste, what can be tasted. 
When the other Gemara says that one thing is a sixtieth of another, it means it's on the borderline of your ability to taste it. Shabbos is one sixtieth of the world to come. It means if you do it right, you can get a sensation of it. If you do it wrong, it's the opposite. But if you do it right, you can get a sensation of what it feels like leaving here and going to a place of being. Incidentally, if Shabbos is done wrong, it has the opposite effect. It becomes very depressing. Incidentally. This may be the reason some sources say that the Christians changed it to a Sunday and the Muslims changed it to a Friday. That when, when, they, when they were, yeah, the, the movements broke away from Judaism, so, and why that day and why that day also needs interesting discussion. But done wrongly, the day that has potential for spirituality for the Jewish neshama has a potential for depression, for pushing down. If it's not used, it's borderline, up to you, in other words. You have to move into the... Shabbos you have to do, it's not automatic. Let me share with you one halachic insight that, just to show one, at least the time we have together, just one example of the parallel between moving from this world to the next and from Friday to Shabbos. Well, there are many, many parallels. Again, we sing Eishet Chayel, for example, right? As a custom, we sing Eishet Chayel in praise of the wife or the Jewish woman or many, many, many uh, connotations in there. But one is, stand the Friday night table be- before making Kiddush, which is the moment of sanctification when the Shabbos is now coming in. We sing about a woman. And in the words of that song, I mean, it's so obvious. It says, Vatishat leyom acharon. That this woman of greatness, this woman of Jewish power, she laughs at the day of death. Meaning, that a person who is correctly prepared spiritually, so when they transition from this dimension of work into the dimension where it all becomes real, what could be a greater laughter? And we sing those words at the moment of transition from the week to that dimension. What could be more obvious? And of course it's a woman, because she experiences, she's the one who evinces a manifest birth in the world. She is the one in whose body that transition takes place, from one world to another. So it's the woman who most deeply understands that she's the vehicle of birth. That's why women are the agents of the redemption. That's on every redemption of the Jewish people, which is a birth, it's been women. In Egypt it was the Jewish women, at Hanukkah it was Yehudis, at Purim it was Esther. It's always been, it's from within women that the, that the birth of a new reality is built. The Jewish people are the woman that's married to Hashem. The lucky detail is this, just to choose one, one law to, to illustrate this remarkable thing. There's a law called Muktzah, without detail. The general law of Muktzah means like this. The general concept is muktza lakzot in Hebrew means to, to sever aside, to put aside. It's, it's, it's out of das, it's out of mind, it's not needed, not used, should not, could not be used on Shabbos. And therefore there's no business moving it around. There are different opinions in the Gemara about exactly how severe and what categories, but generally speaking, objects that are money, for example, <coughs> since you're not going to be buying anything on Shabbos, or a pen, since you can't write, right, and various other categories of muktza, these are things that are not, we're not talking about the prohibition of doing those things. We're talking about handling the objects. Right? Okay. Now, the law of Mukta has an interesting <laughs> qualification. And that is that what defines an object as Mukta on Shabbos is not its natural status, but the way it was when the sun went down. Interesting thing? Here's an example, an application. Let's say you have an object... That's mukta now and ceases to be mukta later. For example, a classic example would be a thing, the, the best example, like I think it was called a basis. A basis in aloha means, in English you call it a basis, something that forms the basis for something else. 
Classic example, the Shabbos table. Let's say you have the table and you have your candlesticks on the table, right? Now the candlesticks are mutzah on Shabbos. Not light candles or used candles. So the candlesticks are candles. Candlesticks are mutzah on Shabbos, you cannot move them. But what's fascinating is the table also is. Because it's a support for mutzah objects, provided there's nothing else on it. If you put the bread, if you put the challah next to, if you put the, the, the challahs next to the, then the table has, it's a basis for permitted and non-permitted objects. But if there's only non, only mukta objects on the table, then not only are the candlesticks mukta, but the table is too. I'm not now going to go into the details. What's fascinating about this law is, what happens if the candlesticks are removed? Let's say a child or an animal knocks them off. Now you have a regular table. Mukta. Can't move it. Why not? Because when the sun went down on Friday afternoon and Shabbos came in, at that moment it froze into its status. That's what defines it as mukta. Now, what does this mean? So, if you're a ritual person, what's it? It's a detail. Huh? That's how they fixed it. What's the spiritual understanding? What's the spiritual connection? This is this is not for the faint-hearted. Okay. This is your if you if <laughs> so now's your chance to leave. <coughs> but there are sources that say deeper sources that say. That the way you look in the next world, again, this needs, needs careful explanation, the way a person looks in the next world is not the sum total average of what your life achieved, it's the way you look in the last second. The way a soul and a shaman looks in the next world is the way it looked in the last moment of transition from this world to the next. It doesn't reflect an average of a lifetime of building. It's a frozen snapshot of the way it looked in the last moment. Let's try and think this through carefully. What does it mean? There are many, many important consequences. Frightening and important. One of the consequences is that what happens in that last moment is critical. It's not like just one tiny blip of a moment averaged out and diluted by the other moments of life. What happens in that last moment and how you hold strong in that last moment of transition... Right? How you hold in that last moment is going to be frozen forever. It's possible to destroy a lifetime's work in the last moment. It's also possible to recover a lifetime's <coughs> lost work in a moment, too. Incidentally, this is learned from the Gemara Baba says, without going into le- detail, but a derivation is also fascinating to know. The Gemara Baba talks about, I don't want to spend too long on the derivation. There, the Talmud talks about the laws of hiring <coughs> workers. The chapter there is describing the laws of hiring employees. And there the subject, the halachic matter, the halachic discussion is, what are the hours they have to work? When a person employs people to work, what hours are they obliged to work? This is talking about a case where there's no agreement, no explicit agreement, or no tacit agreement in that town. What are, if there's a dispute between the employer and the employee, what are the halachic guidelines, what are the hours the employees are supposed to work? So the Gemara says like this, that they are not obliged to come to work in the dark. <coughs> That's what it says. That a worker is entitled to pitch up when the sun rises. You can't require him to travel. Excuse me. He has to leave when the sun rises. You can't expect him to travel in the dark to be at work when the sun rises. But you can expect him to stay till the sun goes down and travel home on his own time. That's what Gemara says. The employer can demand that the worker come to work in the morning, leaving him enough time to get there. From sunrise. That he can't. He can't make him travel in his own time. But he can make him travel home in his own time. Where is it learned from? 
Because the, the amazing halachic source for this is a verse in Tehillim. The Basak in Tehillim there, the verse is talking about the, the, the wild animals, the wild creatures of the forests of the world. That's what it's ostensibly talking about. And it says, it says there, it talks about a wonderful thing, it talks about animals in the jungle, and the Gemara says that's talking about certain types of individual, and it's worth looking up yourself. But the one piece that we need for our discussion is, there the expression is of human beings working, and it says, A human being works, he goes out to his work, and he works until evening. So the Gemara learns from that, that an employee has to work until sun goes down. It says, Until evening. You can be required by your employer, if nothing else was agreed, to work until the sun goes down, then you go home on your own time. The deeper sources say it has another meaning as well. It isn't only teaching what the day's work is leading tonight, it's also teaching what this world's work is leading tonight. Meaning, that your employer, the real employer, requires you to work until the sun goes down. Meaning, that even when it goes dark, in the last instant, you have work to do. What is your work in the world? Is to conquer your lower self. Our work in the world is the inner work of the higher self, conquering and developing the lower self. You have to hold strong and work on yourself until it's dark. So these sources say it means, in, in, in halakhic terminology that means, whenever we express a borderline, the halakhi question is, do we mean until the borderline, or do we mean until and including the borderline? <coughs> and here they say it means, ad means until and including, meaning that you have to work until it gets dark, including the moment of darkness. What does it mean? That when you leave this world and it gets dark, there's a moment of work <coughs> that you're obliged to fulfill even after the transition has begun. Let me explain. It says like this. When a person leaves this world the first thing that happens is that there's a, there's, a, there's a phase, an instant or a phase of darkness. A lot of descriptions of what the process is like. But one of the things that happens is a moment of darkness. It's not an instantaneous transition from this reality to another one. In between those two is a moment of complete and utter nothingness. And the consciousness is a way of not being here anymore, but not being there. In that moment of transition, when all has been left behind the final ordeal strikes. Meaning you have to work until it's dark. There's a moment of darkness and there's still work. The work is coping with the final ordeal. The final ordeal is very bitter and very cruel. In that moment of, of disembodied blackness, the Yetzirah, the lower energy, the lower self, that creature, that inner creature that you've been battling all your life, comes with one last attempt. And on this hinges your whole eternity. And he comes to you in that moment of darkness and he says, you see, I told you there's nothing here. And if in that moment you accept what he says, that really there is nothing here, you lose it all. That means that in the last moment of consciousness, before the next situation is revealed, there's a final test. The test is the test of faith. You see, the nature of the test is, the nature of the test is that a test of faith is always, and again, this is a woman's teaching, the test of faith is a test where logic is no longer there. If, if you're being tested when it's logical and obvious, then it's not a test. The test is when the proof, the evidence, is against what's logical. That's a test. Are you with me? When it's obvious what you should be doing, when a loyalty, for example, is, is, is being requited, rewarded, 
So then it's not, there's no loyalty. Loyalty is when it doesn't look this way and you're loyal anyway. Of course, it's not unfair. I mean, this is only in proportion to a person's abilities. There are no tests that are given that are unfair. The same sources indicate that this is the nature of pregnancy and labor, for example. The process, again in a woman, the process is that pregnancy goes in a certain way, but labor is out of all proportion. It's a critical phase. It's not that there's a gentle progression which ends at an end. It's not like that. There's a gentle progression, but then there's a critical phase. That's dangerous, painful, dramatic, climactic, but that's what the birth is. When the Mashiach comes, can you see the examples? The coming of the Messiah, the Messianic Advent, Mashiach's coming is called Chevle Mashiach, the birth pains, the labor pains of Mashiach. Why? <coughs> because the history of the world, no matter how difficult, will be nothing compared to the climactic. There's an old Medrash, give you an example. That means the final test of the Jewish people will be a test. There's an an old Medrash that says this. The Medrash says that at the end of days, it's worth knowing. An ancient Medrash, it says like this. At the end of days, the Bnei Yishmael, and listen to the specificity of this Medrash. The Bnei Yishmael, which means the Arab peoples, the Arabs. Bnei Yishmael, the sons of Yishmael, right? Couldn't be more specific than that. Will have a holy building where the temple should be located. So it says. How it's derived, how the Medrash knows it, also we have to discuss another time. Also fascinating. But that's what it says. There will come a time when the leaders of the Jewish people, don't ask me any questions, who, what leaders, political, are. the leaders of the Jewish people, so it says, will go to the leaders of the Bnei Ishmael, the Arabs, and they will say, remove your building, we're going to rebuild our temple. So the leaders of the Bnei Ishmael say, it's our holy site. Can you hear this? Can you hear it happening? <coughs> That's our holy site. We are not moving. And there's a moment of, 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 of tension. And then it says that the leaders of the Bnei Ishmael, the Arabs, they turn to the leaders of the Jewish people and they say, look, let's not fight about it. Let's make a divine test. <coughs> let's see which one he wants. You know, the Arabs are... The one thing they have is faith. Not mess around, no games. Attachment to a faith that is, comes from their source in Avraham Avinu, right? In Abraham, which is very, very powerful. It means much more than life itself in that, in that world, in that culture. So they say, let's make a test. See who he wants. Let's go up to that holy site. Let's build an altar. We'll build a Mizbech, an altar, and you build a Mizbech. We'll put a sacrifice on ours. You put a sacrifice on yours. And let's see which one fire comes down and consumes. What they're referring to, of course, is the test that Elijah, Eliyahu and Navi performed at the Carmel. You remember the test? When the false prophets, yes, there was a challenge, and they both <coughs> built an altar. And in fact, they, 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 the, the prophets of the, of the Baal, they, they danced and they immolated themselves and cut themselves and, all, and nothing happened. And on, the Jew, on, on Eliyahu's offering, they doused with water, and fire came in a Shemaim, consumed that offering. It was a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. It was, it was very appropriate this week, because the sources say it was parallel to the giving of the Torah. It was the second time in history that there was that tremendous clarity and upliftment among the Jewish people. So the Bnei Shemuel say to the Jewish people, let's do that. 
Let's do it again. Let's see who me wants. But we want to make a deal with you that whichever one he accepts, we all follow that path. And the Jews agree. It's all written explicitly in the Medrash. The Medrash says they go up there. The Bnei Shemot build them his bear. They put a sacrifice on it. The Jewish people build theirs. They put a sacrifice on it. And fire comes, Mina Shemaim, for the Arabs' offering. Divine fire comes down and accepts and consumes theirs. The Medrash says then, the leaders of the Bnei Shemot, the Arabs, turn to the Jewish people and they say, we had a deal. You agreed to follow us. To accept our religion. And all the Jews present on the Harabais, they all, sh- they all say never. They all shout in unison, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Alakeinu, Hashem Echad. There's a terrible battle. Those who survive, it says, flee to the desert. And after 40 days of hiding in the desert, the Mashiach arrives. That's what the Medrash says. I once asked, I once asked Asim Chavasaman about this Medrash, if it's accurate, if it's authentic and accurate. And he said it will be exactly like that. Doesn't mean, not meaning, not meaning the events. Obviously not. There will be no test of faith of the Jews standing there if it all maps out according to this, yes, this model. But he said that the process will be exactly that. It will be a test in which there are proofs that we're wrong and everyone else is right, which is the final test of loyalty. A loyalty in a love between two people is absolutely meaningless when there's a manifest clear loyalty. Loyalty is when the other person is not with you and all the evidence is to the contrary against loyalty and you remain loyal anyway. That's the only possible test of a loyalty. All final moments, showdowns, moments of transition from this world to the next, are moments of ordeal. And of course the final ordeal is one of of faith. It's a a test of emunah. That's the first of the mitzvahs. So it's the final test. The first of the mitzvahs, the first of the Ten Commandments, is the mitzvah of faith. So the final test will be when the circle is finally closed. And the final test will be a test of the first mitzvah. On which all depend. <coughs> faith doesn't mean belief. Faith means loyalty. Again, not to make a mistake. Emunah in Hebrew doesn't mean faith. It doesn't mean belief. It's from the root ne'eman. means loyalty. Staying with the thing even when it's not obvious. <coughs> ne'eman means staying with it. Tenacity. The, 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 the courage and the dedication to stay there. Not believing. <coughs> The belief concept is only because you have to stay there when it's blind. When you can't see, you have to stay. Can you see what happens in Muktzah? Things have their status because at the last moment, when a person leaves this world, why is the last moment? It's like I once had a Rebbe who gave a beautiful analogy. If you go to a pottery, you make pottery. So they give you clay. So you have one hour to model your clay. And after the end of the class, when you model it, and you finally finished, it goes into the conveyor, and it goes into the kiln where it's fired. Once it's fired, it becomes rock hard. There's no more manipulation. That's how forever it will be preserved. As your clay moves into the kiln, let's say you spend all hour beautifying it. Your whole life has been worked on beautifying yourself, your inner being. As it moves into the conveyor, at the last second, you scrunch it. That's how it's fired. It doesn't reflect all the work. The way it looks as it becomes fired and frozen in permanent form. On the other hand, if you mess around all hour, and in the last minute you suddenly scramble and come to your senses, you can make something. Not recommend it. Not suggest it. Not too much work you can put in in the last moment. If you think you're going to do chuba in the last moment, when you see that final moment come, that's when you'll do chuba. Not so simple. Not so simple. The last moment may be a very brief one. Very brief. Maybe not 
conscious at all? Can't be sure. But the way it's fired, that's the way it is. That's why the last moment can be such a test. And of course, that's also why the last moment can be a moment of recovering one's will. Chuva. person does chuva. Regrets and repents and genuinely erases a lifetime. So that can be a complete cleansing, but it's not easy to regret and erase the details of a lifetime with genuine, thorough sense, yes, uh, sensitivity and, and, and sincerity. But it can be done. <coughs> but just one illustration. That moment of transition is critical. Halachically on Shabbos, we see that when the sun goes down, the moment is critical. It freezes and fixes what will be. What have we learned? We've learned that this world is a process. And it's a movement through a week. The next world is the big Shabbos. That's where there's a freezing, a closing down of options. What you've built, you have there. Or more accurately, you are. That's a dimension where time is not moving like here. It's not a transition of ephemeral. On the contrary, that's a static. There is a dimension, there is an aspect within which it moves, but it's not. It's a movement of increasing momentum based on what was built here. <coughs> Needs also its own discussion. But from the perspective of this evening's discussion, that's a static position, which is the nothing other than the ecstasy of what has been built here. What this has to do with Torah, not time now to go into detail. Torah itself is an endpoint within the world. That means in the world of mitzvahs, Shabbos is the one mitzvah that represents transition from journey to endpoint. And that's why it's such a central mitzvah. That's why it's so unique. That's why it's almost definitional in terms of being a Jew. Shabbos in the world of Torah, in the world of Torah, that means learning Torah, is an endpoint in itself in this world. That means that the reason that we learn Torah is not in order to go someplace else or do something with it. The ultimate reason for learning Torah is for its own sake. And that's the ecstasy of Torah learning. When a person gets their head into learning, right, it's, a, it's a delicious, ecstatic experience because you're living in a world that is a world of endpoint. The, the ultimate aim in learning Torah is not to learn the information to use. Of course you need that as well. But it's learning Torah sitting in the yeshiva environment Yeshiva, incidentally, is based on Shav, which means to sit, which is like Shabbos. It's the one place where you can sit. Normally, Shav, sitting in Hebrew, is a sad word. It means a static situation, a sitting, non-moving situation. But Shabbos, which is a sitting in an endpoint situation, or Yeshiva, where you sit in Torah, which is an endpoint situation, you're sitting, but you're sitting on a vessel that moves. You're sitting on a ship that moves. Here, you don't have to walk. It's one place on earth that you can sit. Believe me, you don't sit in Yeshiva. You work very hard. But you're living in a dimension of endpoint. So that in the world of mitzvahs, Shabbos represents endpoint. In the world of Torah, Torah represents endpoint. It should be apparent now, the moment's thought will show you, why is a non-Jew prohibited? Why is a non-Jew prohibited from learning Torah in that way and keeping Shabbos correctly? Any non-Jew wishes to fulfill a mitzvah, right? Some non-Jew wants to put on tefillin. Non-Jew wants to wear tefillin, wants to do a mitzvah, wants to shake a lulav, wants to sit in a sukkah. They can do it. can do a mitzvah. But if a non-Jew wants to learn Torah for its own sake, for the incredible depth of its wisdom, nothing other than the... Or they want to keep Shabbos, 
A very serious penalty. Extremely serious. In fact, it says they forfeit their life. Why? Why? Again, without too much detail, just in a nutshell, our concept is that Jews and non-Jews represent two worlds. The beauty and essence of a non-Jewish soul is the building and beautifying of this world. Yaakov and Esau, the two twins, split the worlds between them. Esau, Esau's job was to manifest perfection in this world and to build it and raise it to a perfection so that Yaakov, Yaakov could connect it to its spiritual source. It was supposed to be a twin harmony marriage situation. The non-Jew's beauty provide you. Yeah, non-Jew can convert to Judaism if he wants. He doesn't have to. He's got his own role. He or she. But the non-Jewish essence, the expression of a non-Jewish soul in the world, is that side of the partnership that, that conquers and controls and perfects and beautifies and elevates this world. For the spiritual purpose. Not because this world is meaningful, but because this world needs to be made the substrate and the structure, the infrastructure, that can be invested with the soul of another world. But like the body can be invested with the neshama. And the Jewish people's tachlis, the Jewish people's role is not to build this world. Our role is to be in Torah, in the spiritual world, and we harmonize in that fashion. The perfect twin situation. It's been perverted, it's been damaged, the non-Jewish nations are not building the world for the sake of spirituality. We're not doing that well with our job right now, fortunately. But that's the ultimate. So can you hear what happens to a non-Jewish soul that wants to live in the dimension of endpoint? They move out of existence. If a non-Jew's purpose is to build the world, right? His, his purpose and his fulfillment is to perfect and beautify and uplift the world. And he wants to sit and learn Torah, which is living in another dimension. He just moved out of where his expression is. Or he wants to keep Shabbos. Shabbos means desisting from and stopping from and disengaging from the building of the world. Right? But, but he's here to build the world. Unfortunately, we're not tuned to this idea. Unfortunately, the only time we have a sensation of the end point is that we try to make, unfortunately, the journey the end point. You know what we do? Instead of moving the journey, tragedy, instead of moving the journey ahead, we either forget about it entirely and all we're concerned about is taking the next step so you can take the next step so you can take the next step, or you try and make it comfortable. That's what you do. That's what you don't do. While you're going on this train ride, so what do you do? Plaster the walls, lay down a carpet. That's what people do. It's a train. It's going someplace. It's going to get someplace. You have to get off there. No more ride there. So instead of working on the journey, what do people do? Thick carpet on the floor. Skull taps in the bathroom. <laughs> Expensive tiles on the walls. Leather furniture in the lounge. <coughs> Sorry, but they don't ask you over there what color the bathroom taps were. <laughs> that kind of thing's allowed if it makes the journey meaningful. If it's seen in proportion, it helps in the journey. If you need that, maybe. But when the journey gets converted to endpoint, you forget that it's a train that's moving. You try and stretch out over here like this is there. That's a dangerous illusion. That's what we call playing a game. We've discussed this before. But a game is the dimension of forgetting the delicious experience of a game. is being in a situation that doesn't go anywhere. 
It's an escape from reality, and that's why we enjoy playing games. And that's why a game is more pleasurable when it's completely trivial, when it's utterly meaningless. That's when we enjoy it. People sit for hours, engaged in something that goes round and round and round and round, and backwards and forwards and up and down. What's the deliciousness of that completely meaningless experience? It's because there's a time out from the journey. There's an illicit sensation of endpoint. But that's not what this is for. The only amount of that you need is enough to keep inspired about the journey, occasionally when you need it. Shabbos. Shabbos is the experience of living endpoint. And then you descend out of Shabbos and you get busy moving to the next station on the, on the journey, which is a higher one than this one. It's an uphill journey. The place where we allow ourselves to have a sense of endpoint is learning in Torah, a delicious experience of living in the next world. And Shabbos, in the world of practical mitzvahs, is when the sun goes down, you should revel in the joy of living in that dimension. Without noise. Without all the electronic and, and media and interference. Nothing. No, no just, just be. But Shabbos is ultimately depressing when there's been no journey. If there's been no movement towards yourself, and all that's being built is a bigger empty space so that the echoes louder. So when the world quietens down on Shabbos, there's a terrifying <coughs> exposure of the self to the self. People do anything to escape that. They turn up the volume. But Shabbos should be a day when there's a thrill of discovering what you've become. To spend a week working, and now there's no work. Just a moment of enjoying what you are, family, relationships, the things that are really important. But ultimately revolving around what you've become. What could be more pleasurable than bringing it home and actually living it? And recharging so that the next week can take you to a higher point than week after that. And therefore Shabbos is the ultimate exposure. It's a taste of the next world. It's not a technical ritual matter. And it's not a day of rest. It's not a day of rest. It's a day of being. It's a day of return to the point of departure, which was really, in fact, a node on a circle. And it's that journey which represents, the week is represented by that journey which is a destination to the final one, which is, in fact, the original point of departure. Thank you.